at Eastern Idaho's Best News Podcast. I'm Nathan Brown, Education and Idaho National Lab Reporter at the Post-Register. I'm Isabella Alves, Healthcare and City Government Reporter at the Post-Register. I'm Jonathan Hogan, Crime and Courts Reporter at the Post-Register. And I'm Mark Basham, Business Reporter and General Reporter for the Post-Register. Awesome. And so this is our second podcast. And just to recap, so the purpose of this podcast is to give you an inside look on how we report on our stories throughout the week and kind of give you that behind the scenes look on our reporting process. And we hope with this podcast, we add a little extra insight to stories and give you a glimpse inside our minds and our thought process when we go about approaching stories. And unfortunately, not everything we research during our reporting process gets put into our stories. So this will also give us an opportunity to go over what was left in our notebooks. Okay, so Isabella, one of the big things going on right now is the Auditorium District here in Idaho Falls. Can you tell us a little bit about what exactly happened here in the meeting this past week? Yeah, so this um, past week, um, I ran into a little hiccup along the way during my um, reporting process. And as journalists, it's important to verify everything we write in articles. And just because someone says it, it doesn't mean it's true. And so... The auditorium district had its um, meeting this past Tuesday and it's standard practice for the post register to attend. And there were several numbers and timelines being discussed in the meeting and I wanted to verify these numbers against the public documents um, which were discussed and referenced in the meeting to make sure I reported them correctly. Now, to get a hold of these public documents, I was told to put in a records request, which is a bit unusual for meeting documents. Usually those are just handed over and records requests are only filed for getting compiled records like emails or phone call reports or things that aren't meeting documents that are already public since they were discussed in a public meeting and not an executive session. And so it just kind of speaks to the broader issue um, with the district, which board member Bob Nitschke brought up during their meeting, that the record should be more readily available because it's in the public's interest and in the board's interest for the public to know this information. And so it just it's kind of like, why do we have to jump through this hoop to get this public information? No, the... Um... Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but the uh, board documents you're talking about are like are, are basically the uh, the board packet that's prepared before the meeting, like the um, like what we're talking about that's on the agenda. Exactly, it's just agenda items, and similar to the Idaho Falls City Council, everything listed on their agenda is then given in the document packet, and it's readily available online. And this is a common practice for right. public open meetings. Right. Yeah, a lot of cities and school districts do that. Exactly. Yeah. And it just, and like I said, it just serves for the public's interest to know this information. So for people that might not understand how we go about getting these public documents, how's the process really work out? Just to give a little bit of clarification. So to do a records request, we have to basically write a written request. It can be a letter, usually it's by email, um, and it's very kind of legalese writing, um, and it's uh, details like under Idaho code, blah, 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 I'm requesting these public records, and here's what records I'm requesting, please inform me if this is going to cost any money and if you're going to need more time. Pretty standard kind of legal jargon type of writing. And then you send that off 
to um, the records custodian or who is designated as a records custodian in the um, for the meeting or board and then they have three days to respond to you now I filed this request for them Tuesday I have still not gotten the documents from the formal re records request and I filed that Tuesday morning so technically if we're going by the three-day rule I should have gotten them this morning which I still haven't okay well I'll be uh interested to see what you come up with there and um yeah well there's been a uh a lot of other things going on this week as well. We also ran a few stories earlier this week that um, I've been working on for a while about uh, opioid addiction, which is a, uh, I mean, a, a growing problem here like it is everywhere in the country, unfortunately. And uh, from some of the numbers on prescriptions and on overdose deaths in this area seem to show that it's a bigger problem in eastern Idaho than it is in most of the rest of the state. I mean, this is true. In Idaho, there are 77.6 opioid prescriptions for every 100 people. And in Bonneville County, there are 92.3 prescriptions per 100 people, according to the CDC. So there's definitely a high number of opioid prescriptions in, in, and use in our area. And something to also consider is that we have two major hospitals in our county, Ermac right. and Mountain View. And so there's a potential that that might skew the numbers a little. But this does speak to how opioids are overprescribed. Opioids were never really meant to treat chronic pain. They're in their overused as a crutch. There's a definite pill culture surrounding opioids, and instead of fixing the underlying issues, the pill just masks it and creates dependence. And actually, this is interesting because Purdue Pharma has recently issued a statement about how they will no longer have their drug reps promote opioids to prescribers. And this shows how Big Pharma is taking responsibility for the epidemic that they played a large role in escalating. And now, th this isn't to say there isn't a genuine need for opioids. People with cancer, chronic illness or disease, and certain medical conditions really do need opioids to function and live. But the way that it's being prescribed now for things that don't really warrant it, it it's damaging people's lives because these are highly addictive drugs and yeah. this is why the department of health and human services declared the public health emergency in 2017 over opioid use yeah and i've noticed uh coming from west virginia where opioid use is the worst in the country specifically mm -hmm. within the coal region it's really interesting to see how other areas and other regions throughout the country actually tackle this sort of issue. So with here, within here in eastern Idaho, how exactly is this issue being tackled and confronted? Well, there have been a few things. One thing that's been happening um, is there's been a, uh, a push to get law enforcement agencies throughout the state equipped with uh, naloxone, which is or it's usually usually called Narcan. That's the most common brand name. It's an opioid anti antagonist. You know, you uh, give it to someone who's overdosing, and it can save their life. Like so, um, there's been more grant funding available, so um, law enforcement agencies can buy it. And also, uh, and also, the uh, state changed the law recently to make it available without a prescription. So you know, if you live with somebody that has an addiction problem, you can keep some on hand in case they overdose. And it's and um. And it's, it's been getting more use over the past few years. You know, like, if you look at the um, Idaho Falls EMS, for example, in 2014, they administered it 46 times. And uh, they, um, they administered it 83 times last year. So it's almost doubled in the space of a few years, the number of times they've um, had to give this to people. And that kind of goes along with the number of um, overdose deaths in this region. It's uh, definitely higher than the rest of the state. There have been some years in the past few years where it's been 
where the numbers in Bonneville and Bannock County per capita have been about double what you're seeing in the rest of the state and also about double what you're seeing in the other big counties like, like in Ada or Canyon or Twin Falls or Kootenai. If you look at uh, 2016, for example, like the uh, national average was about 20 overdose deaths per 100,000 people. Idaho as a whole is uh, lower than that, about 15 per 100,000 people. But in uh, Bonneville County, it was uh, 24 per 100,000, and in Bannock, it was 26. Now, uh, to give you a little perspective on that, the, um, the number of overdose deaths in Bannock and Bannockville, in Bannock and Bonneville counties you're seeing is, is close to what you're seeing in states like New Mexico or Vermont or Michigan, which, I mean, the, which have, have worse problems than most of the rest of the country when it comes to opioids. I mean, they're not as bad as West Virginia or Kentucky, but they're... But they're up there. There's like there's, there's a cluster of about of about uh, ten states where 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 like um, opioid addiction is really really bad. You know, like um, uh, West Virginia, some states in New England, a couple other states in, in the Appalachian area, and then like after that, you've got another cluster of about ten or so states, which which also have higher than average overdose rates. Like you like usually in the twenty twenty somethings per hundred thousand people, and then that's where where Bannock and Bonneville counties are most years. We we also dove into the numbers a bit more and. Uh, Prescription pills are definitely what's behind most of the deaths. You know, like there are there are a lot of places where heroin and fentanyl are are, are are becoming a big problem and driving a lot of the overdose deaths. And while you have them in Idaho, many more of the deaths are still from pills like oxycodone and hydrocodone. And and most of the drug overdose deaths are from opioids. Period. You know, like according to the numbers from the State Department of Health and Welfare, the opioids have been involved in about seventy percent of the overdose deaths over the past few years. And like if you look at that seventy percent. Um, like uh, pills are involved more than half the time. You know, like the percentage the percentage of deaths involving heroin and fentanyl is uh, much smaller. And, and and the thing is, like, meth meth is actually more common in Idaho and in the Pacific Northwest in general. You know, like you know, like if you you know if you, if you talk to any law enforcement agency in Idaho, they'll tell you that's the drug to see the most often. But you're a lot less likely likely to overdose and die on meth than than you are on opiates. So Isabella, about the opioid addiction right now, how are doctors really trying to tackle this issue while also providing services to the patients that really need these drugs? Well, doctors are being really responsive to the guidelines put put out by the Department of Health and Human Services and the CDC in response to this public health crisis. They're checking the prescription monitoring program more for drugs, um, drug use and abuse, so they can spot people who are addicted, and these are people that need help, and so they can get them that treatment. And so doctors are noticing and ramping back their prescription rate, but again, this is very new. It hasn't even been six months since these guidelines have came out. And doctors are still kind of in this gray area about what to do because they they still need to treat these patients who were on opioids for their problems. But there is that lack of awareness for other treatment options. And that's a problem as a provider if you were prescribing someone opioids and now you're told you're not supposed to do that anymore and you're just kind of like, well, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I don't know what your other options are. And there's just that general lack of awareness for these alternatives, which is a problem that doctors are facing and that doctors I've spoken to um, have expressed. Well, and now uh, we will turn to Jonathan. So right now with your beat this week, I understand that there have been a lot of concern regarding school threats. 
and certain incidences that have occurred within the region. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this has been going on a couple weeks since the shooting in Florida. Uh, this week, we had there was a threat made on Wednesday at Blackfoot High School. Uh, school students specifically threatened that he was going to shoot um, some of the other students, and it was reported to a uh, resource officer. And so that student was arrested and has been charged with a misdemeanor uh, uh, threatening violence on school grounds. And the school is, I believe, also closed, um, or I believe it's uh, under lockdown today. There are more anonymous threats. And there have been threats at Teton High School and Driggs, uh, Chalice High School, and this seems to just be a trend following all of the uh, following after the tragedy in Florida. It is, and this is um, what happens pretty much every time there's a uh, well-publicized school shooting. You see, um, you see an increase in these kind of threats. In fact, the, um, the Educator School Safety Network, it's a, it's a group that tracks these kind of things. Um, now, um, now, it's said that uh, before the shooting in uh, Parkland, Florida, they were seeing an average of about 10 of these like threats of violence at schools at, like every day throughout the country. And over the past couple of weeks, it's been more like 70 a day throughout the country. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and a lot of people are worried. A lot of people are on edge. There was a um, there was a pretty bizarre one in uh, Idaho Falls um, a, 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 a few days ago. Actually, there was a, a bit of a panic because of a postcard a few people got. It it um, had a picture of a rifle with the words "coming to a school near you?" question mark, and uh, and uh, several several people probably got it in the mail. Although one, only one reported it to police. And you know, when news of that came out, a lot of people were worried. You know, like some people didn't send their kids to school. They were on. Compass Academy had had, had a little a little extra security last Thursday because they didn't know what was going on and what was going to happen. So, but then the police investigated it, and the next day, um, this um, this woman who was um, in her eighties, who the police said was a political activist, said that she had sent it. She said she was trying to like raise awareness of gun violence in schools and school shootings, and she. uh, The police said she was very apologetic and she wasn't trying to scare anybody. Yeah, for sure, and obviously you can say that. during occasions like this, occasions like what happened in Parkland, you get a lot more of the sensationalism, a lot more of these issues that come about, and you're seeing it even in places like Idaho Falls. Right, you do, and um, well, and and um, then one thing the police said is that the um, some of the rumors that like that 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 spread on on social media, like after this came out, made things worse, and um, and and they said they're uh, looking into some of the things that were posted and. Uh, Maybe charging some people, you know, who, who who spread information or rumors about about violent things happening at the schools that wasn't accurate. And whenever you have occasions like that, you have definitely more sensationalism within, particularly cable media, mm-hmm. that will bring out certain instances, like what happened in Jonathan, your alma mater's, yes, today, well, Central Michigan. Mm-hmm. Yes, just um, this morning, I we learned that there was a shooting at the school. I went to Central Michigan University. Uh, apparently, a student, a sophomore named James Eric Davis Jr., shot and killed two people in one of the dorms. Uh, several newspapers from the area are reporting that the victims were his parents. Uh, local police have not confirmed that. Huh. And uh, but uh, it's you know it's something you always think this is something that happens somewhere else. This is something that happens to strangers. And then one day it happens in a community uh, that you are much more familiar with, and that 
attitude that it just kind of went away for me today. I was in high school during the Virginia Tech massacre, and I grew up about 30 minutes from Virginia Tech. And my teacher, whenever that occurred, her daughter was actually in the building where the massacre occurred. Really? And she got a phone call and shot right out of the school at yeah. the time. Yeah. So it's, it's really scary, um, you know, going to schools or being in a school when those threats are going on. I remember I was at the University of Missouri when the, there were those massive um, protests going on. And uh, there were bomb threats on campus. The police, um, luckily, were very responsive and arrested um, several students who were making threats on Yik Yak and things like that. But I remember I didn't go to class for a few days because I'm like, are these threats viable or are they not? Yeah, it's a scary thing, and it's something that's on people's minds all over the country. I was, um, I was, I was at a meeting in Ammon a few days ago where they were talking about the, uh, the bond that the... Uh, D- District 93 is trying is trying to get voters approved to build to, to build a new middle school, and uh, one of the things that people in the crowd were asking about is um, what the security at the school would look like, you know, like how you would lock it down if someone came in, you know, like what if what if someone like if someone like made it into one of the pods or the classroom areas, and then the day after that I was at um, uh, 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 Capital for a day in uh, Firth, you know, um, the uh, Home of Governor Butch Otter, and, and like um, he, he he and his cabinet travel around the state, and they do and they do these capital for a day events in uh, small towns where they um, meet with people and answer questions, and uh, a lot of the questions were about this. You know, like people are asking uh, asking Otter about his opinions on gun control. They're asking what he thought about arming teachers. What it, like about uh, what he thought we should do about uh, uh, school shootings. Now, um, what Otter said was he's in favor of uh, banning bump stocks, which are um. Uh, which are an uh, an attachment you can add to a, a, a semi-automatic rifle that can make it fire almost as quickly as a fully automatic. That was used in the uh, shooting in Las Vegas last year. Otter said he's in favor of uh, banning those, but he's against raising the age to uh, uh, to, uh, to have a gun. You know, like he talked about, you know, how how he got his first shotgun and his first rifle when he was eleven, and he learned how to use them. Like um, how it's um, how it's part of the culture in Idaho. The way he sees it, the um, uh, the reason we have gun violence is because of like problems in modern culture, not because of guns themselves. And he he also said he's uh, he's okay with arming teachers. He views that as part of the solution to uh, you know, uh, to, to help deter or reduce school shootings. And uh, Kedrick Wills was the head of the Idaho State Police. He uh, backed Otter up on that. He said arming teachers might make sense in small rural districts where it might take a long time for police to get there if something happened. Now, how does uh? Otter stand with uh, President Trump in terms of that. President Trump recently came out against bump stocks and said right, he, he would be willing to issue an executive order on that issue. But also with that, with the uh, arming teachers, it's kind of been a conflicted situation at this point. Has Governor Otter come out in that? Or uh, yeah, he said he's um, he, he 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 did say he's um, yeah he's he's in favor or or at least not against arming teachers if that's what. Uh, if that's what districts want to do. I mean, it's a local decision now, and um, there are a handful of schools in Idaho where some staff have guns already. There's a charter school in Blackfoot where you have some staff, some staff that are armed, and there are a few others in other parts of the state, uh, not in this area. There's one in uh, Garden Valley, which is in uh, Boise County, I believe, which is a, okay. a, 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 very, remote, a very remote area. You're, like, you're, you're about an hour from the sheriff's office there. I'm actually working on a story right now on the uh, bigger picture on that and on what uh, teachers and administrators in this area think about the issue. That should be coming out in about a week or so. All right, now, uh, Jonathan, I wanted to uh, talk to you about, talk to you about uh, Justin Sarbaum. There was a case in uh, Bonneville County Court where uh, uh, Sarbaum shot and killed Tyson Tew, a friend of his, and he was uh, 
sentenced on Thursday. Can you uh, tell us about the uh, circumstances of that case and uh, what happened there? Yeah, this is a case that began in January of last year, January 2017. And this was a a case where there was some sort of argument between uh, Mr. Tu and uh, Justin Sarbaum, and it escalated into violence. And according to Justin Sarbaum, he shot Tyson Tu in self-defense. And that was a contentious point even at the sentencing. Uh, Sarbaum's defense attorney, uh, Curtis Smith, argued that what happened was uh, Tyson too was charging at him and Sarbaum shot him three times, once first through the web of the hand, once, and then that uh, Tyson then turned in response, was shot through the side, and then shot a third time in the back. Uh, the def- the police and the defense have maintained throughout the, the entire court process that uh, Tyson too was shot in the back and that puts a lot of suspicion on uh, Mr. Sarbon's story. Huh. Um, uh, that suspicion is also based on the fact that when they examined Tyson Tu's body, he did not have injuries on his fists. And huh. so... And so he was, um, the judge gave him uh, 20 years in prison as a sentence. Um, he was originally charged with second degree murder. It was uh, a plea negotiated down to voluntary manslaughter as part of a plea deal. And that's 20 years, two years fixed, 18 years indeterminate. And it was a very emotional sentencing. He had families there, both for the victim and the defendant. Uh, the victim's family, Tyson 2's family, read uh, victim impact statements on having lost this family member and having to move on. And as um, his sister, mother, and fiance said, a year later, it's uh, they still wake up expecting him and then having to remember. Yeah. All right, now let's call uh, Brian Clark, our man in Boise. He's been working on some interesting stories this week. Hey, Brian, how are you? Doing well, doing very well. Good, good. Now, uh, Brian, I want to talk to you about a story that you broke back in December and have been following very closely ever since. The uh, bankruptcy of the manufactured home company Hathaway Homes and its uh, and the impact it's had on many of their customers. Um, there have been some developments on that case this week. Can you uh, fill us in a bit? So the, the latest set of developments uh, came from uh, an investigation that was completed by the Chapter 11 trustee. Um, basically, to, to give some background for this, uh, the, the company had filed for bankruptcy, and then uh, an entity that's a little bit like a federal prosecutor um, in, a, in a bankruptcy case called the U.S. trustee um, presided over, over some of the initial information and found that some company funds had been diverted for personal gambling. And so at that point, uh, she moved to appoint a Chapter 11 trustee. What a Chapter 11 trustee basically does is take over a company from the existing management and run it to try and make the 
account. Um, and uh, and also, uh, we, we got details about the gambling that went on. Um, it, importantly, it, it occurred in the very short window of, the, of time between when Hathaway Homes Group lost a, uh, a $3.8 million judgment to uh, a lender that it had ripped off um, and the time that it declared bankruptcy. It was immediately before the bankruptcy. Um, he, he took about $30,000 of uh, company funds and uh, blew it at Hollywood Casino down in Las Vegas. I mean, this whole thing has uh, really hurt a lot of Hathaway's customers, hasn't it? I mean, like, like, like aren't there people who, uh, you know, gave them money and thought they'd be getting a trailer, and now they're out their money and they got nothing, right? Yeah, it's uh, the, it, it's still hard to, to figure out what the exact scope of the damage is. Um, so the, that was another one of his findings was that he had a, a big pattern of practice of, um, of basically of taking very large, um, down payments from customers. I've documented several instances when it was $100,000, $85,000, $75,000 upfront cash. And in many cases, he never ordered a home for these people at all. Um, it's not clear where all of the money went. Some of it went to gambling. The couple has reported a total of $10 million in gambling over the last three years. Uh, but we don't know what their net losses are. That's actually the figure for their winnings. They reported precisely offsetting losses in, in each year where they reported gambling. Um, and what tax experts say is what that means is they lost money, but we don't know how much. Hey, Brian, uh, in terms of corruption, how does this compare to other businesses and other stories that you've covered in your long career? Um, well, this, this is an interesting one. I, I, I haven't done uh, as, many, as many cases, uh, instances like this. Um, it is interesting to, to relate it to, to some past history here. Um, there, in, in eastern Idaho and Utah both, there, there does appear to be a, an elevated level of, of financial crimes. The most famous in the Idaho Falls area was, the, was Darren Palmer, who in a conventional Ponzi scheme. In that case, uh, the, the total reported losses were $78 million. Um, now, we really don't have any idea what the total losses are from Hathaway at this point. Um, I've interviewed, uh, on the record, 15 different customers. Um, some of those have, have losses probably in, in the $200,000 range. Um, over 50 complaints have been filed with the Attorney General's office, um, and I, I'm getting new people who are who are coming forward almost daily. Still, you know, it's been months since this was first reported. Almost daily, I'm, I'm still getting contacted by people who want to talk either on or off the record, um, and I expect to have about three more on the record interviews completed. So, uh, what's going to happen to most of these people? I mean, like, is there? Um... Is there any chance that they'll get at least some some of their money back? Um, so they, they might get some, uh, but there's every indication right now that they're they're in a, a very dire situation. Um, I can give some examples. Uh, a, a particular case that hasn't been re- I, I haven't reported in the newspaper is uh, a man from uh, Virginia who's a disabled former firefighter, um, and he put up, uh, as I recall, eighty five thousand dollars. Land was supposed to be purchased, a home installed on it, a geothermal system, um, and this was his entire life savings. Uh, the land was never purchased. There was no home purchase, obviously no geothermal system. Um, and so at, at this point, he's, he is homeless. He's, he's 
as it continues to unfold. Brian, how many years did this go on for the people that might not know about the story with Hathaway? So, um, so the earliest uh, instance I've documented uh, was a woman from Jackson, Wyoming, um, and they put up $100,000 back in uh, 2008 um, with the idea of very quickly getting a home in. Um, they ultimately never got anything. Um, they, they had a lawsuit prepared, but, but the, the husband died, the, the, the family says, because of financial stress. And his widow basically said that she was too, too broke to sue him, um, to, to sue Paul Hathaway, and Home, Paul Hathaway and Hathaway Homes Group. So we've got instances going back to at least 2008. Um, the, the bulk of them seem to have been more recent. Um, but it's, it's still something that, that's being pieced together at this point. So it's safe to say that this is going to be an ongoing topic of discussion for the foreseeable future, correct? Yeah, I expect this to play out over years. There, um, the, uh, there's just been a motion to convert the case to a Chapter 7 liquidation where they would just sell off any remaining assets that are there and give people what you know probably pennies on the dollar for, for whatever they're owed. Um, there's also an attorney general suit that is currently on hold that aims to shut down the company. Uh, that may be kind of moot if, if it goes to Chapter 7 because the company won't exist anymore. There is also a, a, a we have pretty strong indications of a, of a state-level criminal investigation. No confirmation yet of a federal criminal investigation, but this, this business operated not only in Idaho, but in North Dakota extensively, in Wyoming, Montana, Utah, so it's it's foreseeable that the feds be, could become involved. It's heartbreaking what's happening to some of these people, but uh, thank you for joining us, and thank you for following the story. Keep us, uh, keep us posted on what happens. Thanks. Always glad to be on. All right, so uh, what are you working on next week, Isabella? Oh, so next week, because of this um, opioid series we ran, it kind of led me into thinking of alternatives for opioids, and there's regenerative therapies, and this is something that not a lot of doctors know about, not a lot of people know about, um, and it's a good alternative to opioids, um, and unfortunately, it isn't too common, and this is, these are things like stem cells and PRP, um, which are platelets from your blood. Um, the blood is extracted and then is spun around in a centrifuge until the platelets separate from the red blood cells, and this is what's injected um, into, um, you know, your acute injuries and it has um, healing properties. And this is also like stem cells, which are collected from your bone marrow, usually in your hip. And, you know, the stem cells are extracted from the marrow and then are also injected. And these uh, therapies usually kind of happen with muscular uh, skeletal um, issues, it, it can heal the cause of the pain in the first place. And so the patients don't have to go on opioids. Okay. And these therapies um, can be used as alternatives to surgeries and aren't invasive because it's like a, a little more intense than getting a shot, yeah. but uh, it's essentially just a shot um, and or an injection, I should say. And they can happen within an hour. You just go into the doctor, they do these injections for you, and you'll start seeing results in a few months depending on your injury and how many treatments you need. Okay. All right. Well, 
Yeah, that's a very interesting story for sure. And definitely something more substantive than I'm doing right now. <laughs> Everything matters. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm How are you little, doing, Mark? I got a little bit more lighthearted stuff that's coming this upcoming week. I'm going on vacation late this week, so I'm trying to pack in as much stuff as humanly possible through mm-hmm. the time that I have. On Saturday, you'll be reading about my um, experience at the Idaho Falls Zoo on Tuesday regarding their lions and their big cats and also winter care for the animals. So that'll be interesting. The lions at the Idaho Falls Zoo right now that they have, the elderly pair that are able to reproduce, have had three cubs in the last year. So it's kind of unprecedented for the zoo, but it will be the last cubs they have and they are expecting those cubs to be sent off within the next year and a half to two years to be able to reproduce for other zoos. So that will be something Idaho Falls Zoo is going to be looking at here in the near future regarding being able to continue the big cat exhibits that they offer. And on Sunday, I talked about this last week, the real estate development issue that's going on in Idaho Falls and eastern Idaho in general. I talked to a bunch of interesting people, and you will be reading this on Sunday. And I already discussed it, too. But on Tuesday, we will be running an article focusing on the local liquor distilleries within eastern Idaho. I was able to talk with the CEO of American Harvest, who also helped found Grey Goose Vodka, which is one of the highest grossing vodkas in the world at this point. And he has taken up more of a passion project on that end. And he bought a vodka distillery out of Rigby, American Harvest. And he's producing it and distributing it nationwide. (laughs) And also talked to the distributors of Grand Teton Vodka, which was founded in 2011. And are actually co-owned, or a portion of it's co-owned, by Channing Tatum, the famous Hollywood actor. Oh, yeah. And Channing Tatum was extremely interested. He wanted to get involved in the vodka industry. And he wanted to make it here in America because all the vodkas he found were either in Russia or Poland or overseas. So obviously he went to Idaho because potatoes, vodka, to make the combination and got in touch with people up in Driggs for Grand Teton Vodka. And for the last couple of years, they have won about, I think, 16 or 17 awards off the top of my head for the vodka that they have made that Channing Tatum has helped produce and helped promote throughout the country. Still, talking with the owners of Grand Teton Vodka, they are tremendous people, and the work that they've done and the collaborations they've done with Channing Tatum, and to promote an industry that is actually tremendously growing in the area. Some people might be surprised that this region actually has a thriving distillery business, a thriving craft beer business, but it really does. And with nationally recognized distilleries and producers, Hollywood celebrities buying in and investing in Eastern Idaho distilleries, that's a tremendous statement for the region. Yeah. Well, I, I look forward to reading about that. Me too. Yep. 
Well, uh, early voting has started in uh, Bonneville Joint School District 93 and their request for a $35 million bond to build a new middle school next to Thunder Ridge High School. I've uh, written about that a bit already, and I'll have a story in next week's paper explaining more about the project and its uh, potential tax impact and um, how it could affect the district. Now, uh, early voting continues through March 9th, and Election Day is March 13th, so they need a two-thirds majority to pass it. So we'll see what happens. All right, well, this has been the Weekly Rewind. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Gracias. Goodbye.